1: The Celtics beat the Blazers like a normal contender, finally. How can the Celtics consistently reach their ceiling? All that and more on First to the Floor. It's going to be First to the Floor here, and it was marked as short as he usually is. A round drive, scoop, on the
0: ground! This not the first time we've seen a superstar in White sacrifice my body.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of First to the Floor. I'm joined by a very special guest, Nate. You may know him from Twitter, YouTube, He's a prolific uh, Twitter user. If you're not already following him, you gotta get on it. Nate, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great,
0: Jake. Thanks for having me on today, man.
1: Yeah, no pleasure. I appreciate you having you on. I mean, Nate has some serious skills when it comes to clipping videos, getting them up like in real time, um, and Giving us the numbers. Really great follow on Twitter. So we'll we'll chuck his stuff in the in the show notes um, after the show. But great to have you. Um look, let's just dive into we'll we'll touch on the Blazers game. We don't need to go too deep into this one. It wasn't exactly the um, the most complicated game to kind of analyze it. I think the Blazers are are pretty terrible, especially when <laughs> there's no Anthony Simons out there. But look, I think we all kind of need it just a gist of no frills blowout Jason Tatum 30 minutes Al Horford 24 minutes no one had to play the fourth quarter four. um it was fine it was good to see I think everybody was on eggshells around that third quarter the Blazers cut it to about 14 and it's like are we are we gonna do this again but no we tightened the screws and we didn't look back uh how'd you how'd you feel about the
0: Blazers game Nate so I was actually at a concert that night um was watching some J.I.D. at the House of Blues. Ooh, Pretty nice. good show. But uh, got home, watched it the next morning, and I totally agree. That was just a nice, you know, nothing too crazy about it. Just a good feel-good win. You know, vibes restored a little bit, I would say. Um, again, <laughs> like you said, the Blazers are nothing special, especially without Ant. I mean, you're relying on Grant and, like, Cam Reddish to... Carry the bulk of your offense aside from Dame, and that's just not enough. Uh, but really, yeah, that just a win. That's all they needed. Just <laughs> a nice, normal win. No one gets hurt. We don't need any super big time forty-five point performances to scrape out the W. So I'm happy with that.
1: Yeah, we didn't need any forty-five point performances. But if we did, I think there was one in there. Like Tatum was looking as good as he's kind of looked all year. Uh, what, what was his stats? Um, 11 for 17, 6 for 10 from 3. To go for 30 points on 17 shots with only two free throw makes, like, that's when you know yeah, that that's an efficient night at the office. And so he didn't play in the Cavs game after the double overtime performance in uh, against New York, which I think was the right decision. I personally would have probably rested Jalen as well. But Jalen had maybe one of his best games until the last five minutes of the Cavs game with the playmaking, getting to the rim, kind of doing it all. But this kind of question about Tatum and load management and his minutes, like it was hard to kind of separate how bad was the Blazers' defense and how spry and how fresh did Tatum look because he looked awesome. Like getting to the rim, splitting doubles, you know, the three, the three ball working, like had his legs under him. It's hard to kind of, you know, figure out against a defense like the Blazers' How much is it? How much of it was rest? How much of it was the Blazers' defense? Do you how, how have you felt about the way that you know Missoula and the team have managed Tatum's minutes? And then we can maybe have a look at how we managed Tatum's minutes for the last fifteen minutes of the game of this season. Sorry.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a funny topic because I don't know how in charge. Joe and Brad are of managing Tatum. I think Tatum is his own boss. We saw it a few weeks ago where they sat him down for one game and uh, Brad came on and said, yeah, he wouldn't be playing the next game. And then there he was just showing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, like You'd have to tie this guy down for the entire night, keep him locked in a room for him to not want to go play basketball. And honestly, I admire that. But if it means more performances where he like you said looks spry, bouncy as his shot work in like that Blazers game. I would be very very happy if they could, you know, get him a little bit more rest especially down the stretch here.
1: Yeah, look. You want your superstar to play as many games as possible, as minute as many minutes as possible. But with it, I think there is a happy middle ground and sometimes these guys just can can sometimes be, you know, their own worst enemy. Like you can see, you know, he's he stuck sub minutes, you know, and there'll be a certain game where he's not getting back on defense as much, or, you know, the drive to the rim, he's losing the handle, things like that. And I think it was interesting. Paul George, as pretty much every player on the NBA starts to get their own podcast, uh, Paul George is on his own podcast, I believe, talking about load management because the Clippers are the poster boys for load management and drawing the ire of the Barclays and the Shacks of the world. And he was kind of talking about how it's not up to them. It's up, you know, the coaches and the management, they come to them and say, you're not playing tonight. And it's hard for, I think, as Celtics fans to kind of reconcile that because we know that Brad's trying to get him not to play. We know that the management and the training staff are like, you probably shouldn't be playing. And our guy is like, I'm playing. And there's not a lot they seem to be able to do about it, which I no. think um, is another, you know, there's plenty of differences between Paul George and, and Tatum, but the willingness and the, to, to put his body out there night in, night out is commendable and speaks to actually them and having control versus the, versus the teams. That being said, I think it will end up kind of being like, you know, he, Tatum's going to end up playing what, 70 ish, 72 games this year. Like, what does it look like if he plays 68, right? I think when I checked this morning, he was fourth in the league in total minutes. None of the other MVP candidates are kind of like in that top 10 range of total minutes. Like, you know, Giannis, he rarely gets above the 34-minute range, similar to Jokic, similar to mp mm-hmm. And whether it was mental exhaustion or physical exhaustion in the finals last year, like he's spoken about how that was a factor. Mm-hmm. I think when we're talking about trying to win a title keeping Tatum fresh, like we know he can play 45, we know, he, we know he can, he'll he'll play 48, like he, it's not a problem for him, um, but can we get him playing at a level where we saw in round one against the Nets, you know, game six against the Bucs, the Blazers game, the Cavs game that we had um, coming out the break as well, how can we get more of those performances and less of the six for 18 performances, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think rest is, like you said, the best probably way to approach that. Uh, we're it's crazy because we're already getting so much from this guy that I have yeah. a hard time asking him for more. But I do think if you could find more games for him to take off, if you could actually hold on to more leads so that they could <laughs> rest them, you know, in fourth quarters, that'd be nice too. Um, and I think that that would be nice from mostly just a defensive standpoint. I feel like he gives so much effort on offense and as great of a defender as he is at his peak form, we don't always see that night to night where he is like really taking those matchups personal. Um, So I think that's where it would really shine if they could, you know, spare him some rest days. So, I don't know. How do they get through to this guy? Maybe as he starts to get older, he feels like, okay, yeah, I gotta take this rest more seriously. Um, but right now I guess if if he's fine with playing, I I'm cool with it too. He is an Iron Man. I know, right? Like and
1: it's it sounds cool on an off day to be like, we should we should maybe rest him a day or we should yeah. maybe try and keep those minutes down, but then Tatum's on the bench and there's eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter and the lean's down to twelve and you're like you know what I could really use? Help. Just Jason Tatum coming coming off the bench just a little bit. Um, I think it's maybe it's a discipline point of view from even Joe. Just you know, get those those rests uh, when he comes out in the first. He comes out the third. Can we get him out a little earlier? Hold him out a little longer. So maybe it's not necessarily the total games played. It's just can we get him down from thirty-seven minutes a game to like thirty-five, and that cumulative impact. Of, of those minutes so I think from like you know wins and losses perspective if you, you you take down the minutes just a tiny bit I think that the the like those minutes are going to be slightly more impactful and I think like you know, even when Tatum's not playing his best like he's still an impactful player just of like the gravity and the playmaking and even when he's not defending at his peak still you know a positive wing defender in in the NBA so um I think maybe it's just, where, especially as we get towards like these last fifteen games here, that's what I would love to see. Just like ramp it down a little bit, um, especially with these squishy defenses coming up. Like, you know, Hawks tomorrow. You know, Kings coming up. There's like we don't have a lot of like tough defenses outside of like the Bucks, and I think we play the Raptors twice in like the last couple games of the season. But outside of that, most of the um, most of the defenses are pretty squishy, so that should hopefully help alleviate. Um, some of the load as well Um, we'll see Um, I'm sure they're having these conversations behind closed doors so we'll we'll have to see how we go uh, tomorrow or just blow them out as you said let's just (laughs) get the 20 point
0: leads always yeah I'd always like that Um, I would add though I totally agree with you try and find it more times during the game that you can you know scale back his minutes a little bit per night Um, and I think it just as you were saying that it kind of occurred to me again that The loss of Gallinari kind of is a ripple effect for that at the beginning of the season because he was a guy that could sort of step in at that similar position on the forward wing spot and they could, you know, for minutes at a time, they could get some go-to scoring ability, some scoring punch from him. Um, And they sort of weren't able to find that guy this year that could fill in for that. You know, they've, they've got Sam, but Sam, you know, you don't go to Sam when you need a bucket. Mascala is obviously not that guy either. So I think that hole is a little bit um that's a underrated reason too why he's really being kind of forced to play as much as he is.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um and something that we've spoken a little bit about is just getting like, just getting Derek's minutes up. I feel like of of all the players, you know, he and you don't want to ride anyone too hard, but Derek okay. Kind of, he can is that guy that can can do it all. He, I don't think he's missed a single game this year, despite just like losing teeth and br- breaking his neck and like losing an eardrum, like another Iron Man. And you know, maybe really running some more three guard lineups. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of getting closer to wanting to, you know, lean into going smaller with this group versus you know, I I, I like the double pick lineup, but you know. How much are we actually going to be able to see that now? I know we're getting closer to Rob coming back again, but oh, do we do we just kind of lean on you know Derek and Marcus and Progden minutes in order to bring the minutes of Tatum, oh, yeah. Al, and Rob down? Because I think even when they ask more, they're just like so hard to deal with on kind of on both ends, but especially on offense when you got Marcus and Derek and Progden just constantly driving and kicking and getting the ball moving that that you know that's going to get the offense to a to a totally fine place when it comes to the regular season you know
0: yeah you, you know you really don't have to convince me about more <laughs> white minutes i'm all for that um the three guard lineup is one i was really interested in when they brought Brogdon here as just a way to kind of make these lineups make sense with the guard depth they have and i don't feel like we've seen it as much they could try to explore that more and i think just finding the right way to play with that unit would be big. Just push the pace and, you know, drive, kick game would just be incredible with those three. I I feel like there's something there that's a little bit untapped at this point. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we haven't seen
1: enough of. We're kind of running out of time. Mm -hmm. You would think we would have seen even more, you know, Rob's gone down, but, um, you know, the, the emergence of Sam, uh, you know, finding his shot again. I mean, he was again crazy in the, the Blazers game. Some of these shots he's hitting, which is no no airspace, getting those leads out. So maybe that's just where Joe likes to go get a bit more size. But yeah, we're all, we're all, anytime someone says more Joe Quiet, I think 99% of Celtics fans are off for that. Think no um, of more Sam has kind of come to the detriment of kind of public enemy number one uh, among Celtics fans at the moment. Uh, that's Graham Williams. Friend of the podcast, Big Gill. We had Grant's dad on earlier in the year. It's um, been a rough, uh, rough little week here for for Grant between the Cavs game and the missed free throws. So after the Cavs game, we have a lot of a uh, lot of spin. Some reports kind of leak out um, about Grant and his injuries. So. Jared Weiss reported that he's dealing with an elbow injury, um, with some ligament inflammation, right after the right after the Cavs game. But then in the Blazers game, he's not playing, which kind of you know makes you think maybe there is a real injury. But then he comes out and plays in garbage time, and he's just launching, launching for threes. We got videos of him practicing hook shots um, against Derek White, and I'm like, if there is an actual, you know elbow injury are we seeing are we seeing him do these sorts of things should they be just limiting him if they don't need him for a specific game how much are you buying into like kind of the, the backlash of the, the grant stuff
0: i'm in a weird point with grant honestly because we have all seen what this guy does and what he means to this team at his very best i don't know how much of his very best we've seen in this calendar year which is unfortunate and you know what he did last season, did last season in the playoffs for a majority of it. It just, it gives me this piece of faith that he is still, you know, capable of getting back to what he is. But like I said, this year, I don't know how much we've seen of that. And as it, as it comes to the injury, I feel like inclined to believe most players when injury stuff comes out, the timing of it's just really unfortunate. Um, in the midst of a struggle. So it could sound like an excuse. What I did see was some people uh, bringing up that the injury did first pop up like several weeks before that report came out on an injury report. So um, that makes it feel a little less like an excuse to me. But at the same time, like you said, when I saw the Skyhook video, I was <laughs> like, mm, we got some inflammation in the shooting elbow. Maybe we don't do a Skyhook competition, you know? <laughs> yeah. Let's not film the Skyhook competition. Sure. Yeah. It Let's was kind posted. of it felt like setting them up a little bit. I will say yeah. that.
1: I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect between the social media teams and what's happening because right after the Cavs game as well, there was like the Celtics posted like this graphic of Grant Williams, like I forget what the point of the post was, but it was like, please read game them.
0: Day post, like enough beginning for the day
1: just please read the room you're just asking to have to turn off replies or hide replies like and and i think you know we we definitely believe in in the ceiling of grant i think you know when you talk about trying to get it to get back to the finals you have to try and restore confidence in grant when it comes to both the sixes and the bucks matchup he plays really well in those matchups defensively it's just the reality of the situation and so you want that confidence to come back, you need that three ball to to get going again. It's just, these contract years are tough. And I feel for the players, especially when it comes to restrictive free agency, like, yes, maybe, you know, the the leaking of the report, you you know, I I do tend to think that the injury is real, how bad it is, we don't know. But like the timing of it, it just felt like it's, you know, all kind of tied to this contract stuff, you know, leaking out how much he wants to get, get paid, um, and it's been it's been crazy. Like this is like the most trauma that the Celtics have had all season. And so, like, compared to the rest of the NBA, whether it's a Kyrie, a KD, a Luka, like how many teams have had like I mean, Ja Morant this week as well. Like, the Celtics have the Celtics in the box are like the lowest maintenance, you know, contenders. It feels like in in years. Just as, literally, as I'm saying, I I think this is the first year in maybe Tatum and Jalen's career since like that rookie year we haven't had to have the can the chase play together discourse which mm-hmm. is why we're grasping his straws and we're talking about Grant Williams so much which is probably yeah. a good thing right yes
0: yeah, so when your biggest news is that two of your deep bench role players might be a little bit upset about their role or the or worried about how much they're getting paid in the offseason that's perfectly fine with me I would <laughs> yeah. say maybe let's limit the number of articles we're writing about them. I mean, do we need this right now? I don't think so. I think that was like the third or fourth Grant William article that I've seen in the last like week or so. Um you know, yeah. maybe we yeah. don't need that right now. <laughs>
1: yeah. And look maybe this, this this is as much how I was gonna say media in general, but we're talking about it as well on on this podcast. So enough enough with Grant. Let's let's just be thankful as Celtics fans that the drama and the the chaos this year has been kept to a minimum and, and the discourse can mostly just be about the basketball on the court. Speaking about the basketball on the court, uh some of the frustration, I think, you know, over the past since the All-Star breaks ended, and even, even going back to late, you know, you know, January, uh, the offense has been relatively inconsistent. And Eric Weist, uh, amazing the guest on the podcast, he was recently on the Ringer NBA show talking draft we really recommend following him here. There's a great Twitter thread I'm going to pull up here, and we'll read out his kind of, you know, assessment of the Celtics, specifically on offense. And thinking of a way to articulate my thoughts on the Celtics' season-long struggles with consistency. Here's my take. The actual offensive strategy is predicated on five-out spacing and using the threat of the three to create space, drives, and off-ball movement. The goal isn't to take as many threes as possible, but to generate more high-efficiency attempts on the opposition within the flow of the offense. There is a distinct difference between these two things. Missoula has stated innumerable times that improving shot-drive reads is paramount, Hence, it's easy to surmise that it equates not getting bored with the details with working for great shots, which intuitively includes non-threes. When the team is playing their best, this balance is well struck. The issue is they tend to settle for the shot in key situations too often, instead of creating to work, working to create the advantage in drives and movement. The further they drift from the balance, the more Tatum tries to take over in order to assert control in a way he has confidence in. That's human nature. Motion principles are far less familiar and can lead to turnovers in bunches when the rhythm is off. See the Warriors' evolution. Unfortunately, unlocking Tatum's top game is currently predicated on motion principles like Golden State, not pick and roll ISO like Luca, LeBron, etc. The heliocentric club, the latter being mass marketed as the superstar norm to conform to. The overall success of the team and seeming ability to flip a switch to get back to winning makes these marginal lessons harder to internalize that are on counter to personal familiarity, team prototypes, media narrative, and career achievement. There's a bit more to it. I really recommend going to read it. Um, Nate, I'm, I'm sure you you had a, had a read-through of that one. Are there any, like, main takeaways you, you had from that thread? Great thread from
0: Jared Weiss, by the way. Yeah, I agree. I would say just totally spot on. It's something that I always feel with this team. Like he said, when they are hitting that balance, everything just starts to look good. It starts flowing. Um, but when the ball movement stops, when the player movement slows down, it's just, it's like that's not focusing on the details. You know, the details are when we can get that ball moving from side to side. Because the biggest thing about this team is that they have so much talent that they put on the floor. So you want to take advantage of that by getting teams in rotation. And then when they're in rotation, you've got guys like Brogdon. You've got guys like Jalen Smar, whoever it is that can make a play when the defense is collapsing and rotating. So I just think that when they're doing that, they are ridiculously hard to cover. Um, But it feels like they're playing in the defense's hands when they start to slow things down Um, and, you know, maybe run one set, one pick and roll, whatever it may be and that is one of my just bigger complaints with them. When they're on script, things look so good, but when they start to slow down a bit and kill that clock, it, just, it can be a bit frustrating to watch because you know how good they can be when they're fully maximizing that offensive scheme. Yeah,
1: I think it can be a case of old habits just die hard. It can be, you know, the, these guys are humans. They've been you know, taught certain ways to play and practiced certain ways to play their whole career, um, and at that point about the mass market superstar and kind of, you know, the Luca, the LeBron, the Harden, um, these guys are supposed to have the ball in their hands and um, create plays for everybody else, um, which is so interesting to me because of the most successful kind of team of these, you know, the Tatum and Jen, when they were, um, you know, entering the league, the most successful team in the NBA was the Golden State Warriors. And it's like, they play this, you know this is what joe and Brad have been and going back to the spurs as well the beautiful game right that's yeah. what they've been trying to ingrain in these guys for years and years and it is getting better like there's no there's no question that um that they, we have seen improvements it's just they they want to go back to you know especially when when they slow it down um and you get tired when you get tired that's when like old habits start start to creep in and I just don't think it's in Jalen and Jason's like natural nature. I I think that they would agree that you know T- Tatum loves talking about making the right play, getting the right read. Like some of his best games are when he's just playing in the flow of the offense. Like I think he's similar to KD in that way. You can kind of drop him into any lineup, any situation, and he can play off ball, on ball, uh, especially earlier in the season. We were seeing, and we still we're still seeing it relatively consistently, but that first kind of six to eight weeks where it was, you know, he was coming off screens and cutting and. You're finding him for backdoor cuts, all that kind of stuff. We're not seeing quite as much of it, and I think some of it can be explained by just the 82 game regular season and playing this type of offense is both physically difficult and mentally difficult when you're when it's just not your natural way of playing.
0: Yeah, I think to me, when when they get into that, slow the game down, run a single pick and roll spread the floor maintain the spacing whatever it may be they can run a simple offense that they that still involves some type of movement and misdirection because when they do that it just feels like it's allowing the defense to stay set not put any pressure on them and just rely on you know the the abilities of the Celtics one one one-on-one talent which is sort of Geared towards that heliocentric comment about superstars, um, and you know, like that thread said, that is not exactly where Tatum or the Celtics are at their best. It's when they've got you know they're running a stagger screen for Tatum. Tatum comes off, gets the ball. Somebody's rolling to the rim like that. I think it's just that simple: as to stay with those things. And part of me wonders how much of that is Joe giving them some room in those moments to try and control that game for themselves. And that's what they default to because there's been comments in the past uh, from the players and others about how Joe can be kind of hands off at times and just let them work through these things and learn. And I do wonder if that's the case here. It's, you know, if he calls a play, we kind of see how those can go, whether it's an end of game scenario, they call a timeout, They get a great look like against the Sixers where Tatum comes off uh, from behind half court, gets that game winner. So it's moments like that where I do wonder when they start to revert to those things, is that self-inflicted? Is that something that stems from the coaching staff? Because part of me doesn't believe that it is. I would assume they're being uh, taught better habits there.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they're getting back to the film room the next day and they'll be enjoys like, what are you doing here? What are you mm-hmm. doing here? And we're starting to see Joe get a little more pissed off. Like he he dropped a couple of uh, s bombs in the um, about defensive rebounding the other day. So look, yeah, That's the, what the, happens the, the,
0: when that interim tag gets taken yeah, off? Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Less less PG thirteen now. Yeah. So I'm I'm shit. Have no doubt that they're getting and they're probably believing. Like, yeah, why are we getting down and just dribbling on the side? Why are we not getting down and getting a a Marcus? Tatum's screen, a Derek Jalen's screen, like you can just hit that one action and then flow from there. Like you, you can, you, you can strike a balance of being up 12 or six minutes to go and slowing the clock down, but also then playing fast and purposeful into an action with 12 seconds to go on the shot lock as opposed to 16 seconds to go on the shot clock, right? Like it's just what, and it's the fourth quarter, right? I think I was listening to Off the Pike this morning, uh, podcast on the ringer and had some good numbers on their pace stats in you know first three quarters, they're above league average, near the top in a couple quarters of pace. And then in the fourth quarter, 27th in the league when it comes to pace, which like 100 percent matches the eye test, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like you like you should bleed the clock when you're up 15 points with a you know six minutes to go. But there is an in-between, there's something in between what the Celtics are doing when they start. Getting into their actions with nine seconds to go on the shot clock, and it's like a Tater ISO, and like it's a half screen from, from whoever, and you end up with like a terrible, you know, contested sh- sh- like shot with with two seconds to go. So I'm sure, and it's a good point, like how much you know is letting them play through things. So when you look at getting to the playoffs, is Joe going to like be tighter on that? And that's what we don't know. And that's like that's like part of the unknown of going into this playoffs is what are we going to see come playoff time. I, I do have um, I do have confidence. You know, like Brad being in the building, right? Like these guys. Joe's a humble guy. We and I know you watch the, the KG, uh-huh. uh, Pierce Showtime stuff, that right? Was like how yeah. I, I mean, like if you're a Celtics fan, and you haven't watched um the Showtime KG and Pierce at Part One. Can't wait for Part Two. Uh-huh. Uh, you haven't watched that? You got to go check KG and Pierce coming back to the Garden. I'm pretty sure Paul was just. The highest man in Massachusetts. When he when he pretty much when he goes anywhere, he he's hilarious. Um, but yeah, like Joe's willing to to learn and and get you know, um, you know, get input from from, from around him. And so to have Brad there, one of the the greatest you know playoff coaches, um, I thought, you know, in the league, I think it can only be in a, you know a value add. So I wonder if they have a little bit of a shorter lease when it comes to playoff, and then also just this team in general similar to that thread said, like they have kind of showed that they're kind of a flip-the-switch team, which you don't love from a team that hasn't won a title. But like they've won so many games since they've come in the league. Like outside of the Warriors, they have won the most games in the NBA mm-hmm. you know, over the past like six years. And so you kind of understand it from a human perspective. Like we understand what to do long season, but like you just want to see them kind of just be a little bit more consistent, especially when it's like, okay, well we blew that lead against the Nets. We just blew that lead against the the Knicks. And then and then you got the Cavs game. So hopefully we can get a little bit more offensive consistency going here.
0: Yeah, there's totally a balance that we can find there where it's, you know, yes, they gotta f- they'll shut down the effort a little bit as this long season's going on. But like you said, at the same time, we really shouldn't be blowing this many leads and there is some easy fixes to that so
1: yeah we, we got um we got a comment here clean music lover in the in the chat here we're gonna have to disagree agree to disagree here our players don't have high basketball IQ and I don't like his system meaning Joe Mazur. firstly thank you for stopping by I appreciate anyone leaving a comment um I think between you know Horford, Derek Brogdon like Marcus like we have a bunch of high IQ players it's you know you don't win deep into the playoffs without high IQ players but i think that point about his system is interesting to me because i think a big part of the conversation on twitter of oh Brad's system um well i have to agree to disagree on that one because it's, it's quite similar to to joe's as well as it's, it's just quick decision making take open shots um the question of are we taking too many threes and one of our uh favorite followers on uh, on Twitter. I know you guys go back and forth on Twitter a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trey on Twitter. I know he's going to come on the pod at some point. Um, he's got a new baby girl so life's busy for him. But um, on the threes, seven of the 10 highest teams in percentage of points in the paint are also bottom 10 offenses or five of the highest 10 teams in percentage of points from three are top 10 offenses. Threes are good. It's 2023. <laughs> Like, I went back and had a little look as well, right? So, you know, last season, the Warriors won the NBA title. They were third in the league in three-point attempts. The year before, the Bucs won the title. They were eighth in three-point attempts, and they're, I think, sixth this year. Like, the Bucs take a lot of threes as well. 2020 is kind of the outlier. The bubble season, the Lakers won the title. Um, They were 24th. But when you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, that can obviously be skewed. And also, um, you might not win a title if it's not in the bubble. And then the 2019 Raptors, sixth in the NBA three-point attempts. And before that is the Warriors dynasty. Obviously, they shot a lot of threes. And the Cavs, which is in the 16-17 season, which is like one of the like great offenses that has just been lost in NBA history because they were going against uh, the Warriors, second in the league in three-point attempts. Like the best offenses in the NBA shoot a lot of threes. And Mozilla is not saying, and again, back to Rick Wise's threat. It's not take as many threes as you can. It's like if you're sticking to your principles and you're playing the right way, you're going to generate very high quality shots, not just from three, but it's going to make your looks at the rim much better as well. And you saw it in the Blazers game. Obviously, the Blazers are going to look anyone's offense look pretty good, but when you're you need threes to open up the paint, you need to, you need paint touches. open up the three like all these things are connected but the idea that too many threes when all the best offenses shoot a lot of threes like it's just kind of nonsensical at this point
0: yeah I mean there's a lot of talk about they take so many threes you know we saw the Knicks game where people use that as a prime example like they're shooting so much they're shooting poorly but sometimes they just miss You know, you could generate very good shots. That's what it's all about. If you're getting good shots, you should be taking those shots. That's bottom line. You should be taking (laughs) them. You shouldn't pass up open corner threes that you generated off of, um, you know, ball reversals, you know, paint touches, whatever it is. But that is the other part of the conversation. You have to be generating those types of shots for me to um, fully be on board. Because, you know, if it's just walk up, maybe one pass or right into a screen and pull up. Sometimes I'm like I mean most of the time I'm okay with that depending on who's shooting it, but at the same time I think we don't need to see that every time one pass down shot. You know, like, yes, get into the offense and then there should really be no problems with it. If they're generating good looks, it's a make or miss league. A lot of the times they make them, you know, that's part of I know people don't like the Whole math thing with Joe Mazzulla, but yeah. I mean, it, it is what it is. You know, a lot of these nights where they're making their threes, they're winning the game straight up. They are so. Um, I I don't know how people can really call for them to stop taking as many. We know what year we're in. We know uh, what wins games. So the nights the Celtics aren't hitting threes, they're losing. Just it's that simple but just generate good looks and that should just be the end of that story I'm surprised we're still talking about that this year I know in 2023 Meh. but yeah so I think you know that kind
1: of that kind of explains the offense and if look if you guys want to go look at some of the numbers like I just the, the teams that shoot sorry before we move on because I looked at this as well teams that shoot their highest percentage of their shots at the rim so you want the Celtics to go to the rim shoot more shots at the rim these are the teams Top 10 in percentage of their shots at the rim. Lakers, Thunder, good team. Rockets, Charlotte, Denver, good team. T-Wolves, solid team. Pelicans, Blazers, Magic Pacers. That's the top 10, right? So outside of Denver, that's the only contender in the top 10 of their percentage of their shots at the rim. And part of that is because Jokic is is Dumbledore and he just like (laughs) gets wide open layups at the rim. So
0: it's like, why why would you not, right? All right. I think another part of that is just as I'm hearing some of those teams, I'm makes me wonder how many of them actually are good at shooting threes. That's part of it too. Like the Celtics are a good three point shooting team, so it makes sense that they take those looks. But I would say you had the magic on that list, right? That doesn't scream, um, excellent three point shooting team. Yeah. You know. You got the Thunder who is obviously a great offense there, but they have leaned into you know, paint touches and drives more than pretty much any team I've seen. I tried to go through some stats the other day um, on NBA.com, and as far back as it goes, they generate like the most drives per game as like as many years as NBA.com goes back. So that's one thing they've really leaned into that. But I mean, none of those. Yeah. None of those teams really scream like excellent three-point shooters. And if you're a great three-point shooting team like the Celtics, it makes sense that you shoot as many as you do.
1: Someone that who is an excellent three-point shooter is, I think, one of, is become one of my favorite Celtics of all time. And it's Al Horford. Yeah. Like I thought we got two days off here and I was just kind of tossing around what we could talk about. And I feel like it's been lost this season how incredible Al Horford's shooting season has been and how great like of a weapon he has become. Like, it cannot be understated how, how good of a shooter he's been this year. Of all players taking at least five three-point attempts this year, Al Horford leads the league in three-point percentage. 45.4%. He's now ticked slightly ahead of our good friend Malcolm Brogdon, 452 after Brogdon don't know what happened to him again in the players game. That was very weird. Um, but since the all-star break, Al Horford is averaging 15, 7, and 3 on 62.5% from three on 6.7 attempts per game. 70 percent of his shots are from three. Like the weapon that Al Horford's turned into the best big man shooter in the NBA, it's not particularly close, even though Brooks having a good Brooke Lopez is having a good year as well. Um how what have you what have you seen and what have you enjoyed from Big Al this
0: year? <laughs> I have enjoyed a lot of things, but what came to my mind initially is how much fun I'm having watching every fan base that we face. They bring up, oh yeah, I mean, Al Horford had to hit six threes, had to hit five threes tonight. Yep, there we go. Right there. <laughs> every night now it feels like. I mean, he'll never do this again. Oh. Oh, Al Horford's got five threes again tonight. Like if you're the problem with that is that they're leaving him wide open on several occasions. I think it was the Sixers game. The first time I heard something like that, I clipped all the threes and he's just, Joel is deep in the paint and Horford is wide open. These are not tough shots for a great three point shooter, but I mean his transformation into what he is now is just, it's very special. Um, you know, he came into the league, obviously, pretty great shooting touch regardless, but to really transform his game from what he was to a premier stretch big is very, I applaud that entirely. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. And the fact that we have him locked up for another three years on top of this, like there's there's a few guys in the NBA that are proven that you can play into your late thirties and, and early forties. And it's tricky to kind of, You know, analyze where Al Horford is because I think it's pretty clear that he's coasting, especially on defense. Um, And then you look at a game like against the Warriors at home in Boston, where he had twenty and ten and was just like a menace on both ends. Like, you know, that gear is kind of in there, and you're like, you're happy that he's kind of saving that energy for for the playoffs. But what he's turned into and how that, what that kind of means for the Celtic from a team building perspective to have. The fact that he's still the best big man on the on the Celtics, the most impactful, the most reliable at thirty—is he turned thirty seven yet? I don't think he's still thirty six. The fact that he's still doing it at thirty six is is so impressive, and it's like kind of thank God because we'd be we'd be a little we'd be a little concerned if if Al Horford wasn't still playing at this level because um, yeah, and I think you know Brad I think's done a pretty good job. Uh, Filling out the big man rotation this year, like I think the process has been sound. You know, we saw some Noah Vonley, You know, Blake Griffin's been solid. cornette has been playing the best ball uh, of his career. I know you had a great actually, like video and thread about how Brad and Joe have turned Cornette into this, um, to kind of basically a different player to any point throughout his career. If you want to
0: like touch on that quickly, yeah, that was that was me trying to make a video going through the Celtics' performances this year and trying to grade them. And, you know, coming into the year, I don't really feel like any of us had a good read on what Luke Cornett could do this year. I don't think most expected really anything. Um, And regardless of what you think of his play, he has probably surpassed your expectations before the season. And it was really interesting breaking down the stats just of the complete and total flip that happened with his play style, they said, Luke, you are seven foot two, get in the paint, please stop taking threes. And he is just dunking, he's rolling, he's catching lobs. And it's like, how did no one think of this sooner? Almost like, Luke Cornett should not be a stretch big, I'm sorry. But yeah, this change, it's been great. I will say, I don't know if he's been I feel like he's lost it a little bit in these past few weeks. Uh, I don't think we've seen as much of the guy that we had early in the season. Um, But he is—he's still an NBA player. I'll say that. And they're not paying him anything, so this is—it's definitely a win for—for what he is. But I would absolutely like an upgrade at that point, um, at at that position at some point. So,
1: yeah, I think the reality is. With Al's aging, as amazing as he's been, we know, father time undefeated, as amazing as LeBron is, like those injuries are starting to pile up for him. The fact that Al, like, is the most durable, and resting on the back-to-backs is like an absolute no-brainer, and clearly seems to be be working, because he has barely missed a game outside of that. Um, It will run dry eventually, and like, we're just going to be playing the Rob game, I think, for his whole career, so how Brad addresses that in the off-season will be interesting. I think, you know, corner can stick around, Blake can stick around, but like just having a deep rotation of options, you know, I and I know, uh, you know, beyond do Cabangeli had a monster game in Maine. What, what do you, you have like 28 it? and 20 today or something like that? Yeah. he he
0: to drop 20, 20. Yeah. Something like that. Just, yeah. Huge game. I, I was sort of hopeful that he could give us what me Luke too came in this year. I, after that summer league, I was totally on that bandwagon. Oh, no question, because I, I, mean, I don't know what the plans are for him. Maybe um, they'll up they'll bring him up next year. Yeah, maybe he spent this year getting you know used to the system and they'll feel comfortable with that, which would be fine with me. But either way, I'd still probably want an upgrade if we can find something this summer. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: You know. Wouldn't shock yeah. me if, like, you know, because JD, why, well, you know, JD had
0: a triple double today in in Maine as well, right? So, I mean, as far as rookies go, he is a pretty crazy playmaker. He's like yeah. fourth in the G League in assists per game, and I mean, that's that's really impressive. You know, there's a lot of veterans he, yeah. in that league too. I you can kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit. I mean,
1: Pritchard, I would be surprised if he comes back the the next year. And JD is kind of the perfect. Um, Perfect replacement for for Pritchard is like a fourth guard and a guy that's probably not going to be upset with minutes. He's going to be happy that he's on an NBA salary. And mm-hmm. then um, I don't sure. I'm, I'm not 100 percent on like the rules and and the like. Will they have another year to sign Cabiglie? Because I think you know part of why I think that they kind of went with Luke over Cab was just um, the erraticness maybe of, of Gelly. Like he wants to block everything, he wants to jump for every rebound versus Luke, just probably going to play like. He's his variance is probably you know his range of outcomes is kind of yeah, more he more can't steady.
0: Surprise either you know like right. he he's seven two and at t- he's he, like he's I don't know how to say it but he's easy to see why they would keep him out there. He can just be moldable to what yeah. you need him to do. You know he can protect the rim a little bit. He can catch lobs a little bit, and he's not gonna try and overstep that. He's not gonna too much out there. Like Cabangeli, he'll probably chase a few blocks. He'll probably be out of position. The few times we've played him, he looks like really kind of like young Rob in the way that he's yes. just sort of like bouncing around out there. Um Positioning wise, kind of just looks like antsy. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, Luke's been around too. So it makes sense that they would go with him. I was also kind of hoping we could get a little bit from Leigh, but That was mostly because he's just a hometown guy. I was hoping he could stick around here. Hey, we did get a little bit from Vonley. We got a little bit. We got a little bit.
1: We did. Look, if we go back, check the tape. He he helped us get like a couple of those early wins. And we were like, look, look at this Brad guy. He's done it again. And Mm -hmm. then really, if you told me that's what we got from Vonley, he helped us get like three wins. That's probably all you can can ask for. Yeah, Um, you're right. yeah, we're kind of we're kind of jumping around here, but like you know, this it's a couple of days off. We're just cruising around in the chat here. Um, do you see us adding Beggarin or Madar to the roster next year? Look, if you've been listening to this pod for a while, I'm a huge Begarin fan. Really? Um, I kind of fell off the uh, the Madar bandwagon because he kind of bailed on. Uh, and we have so many like guards. I don't know exactly where Madar fits in, but I will say on Twitter the other day, someone I forget his name. Um, who's actually kind of like seems to be locked in on the draft and stash, stash stuff, was saying that he likes the Begarin and, and Madar pairing. And Madar's had a really good year with a bunch of like NBA prospects and stuff. So, look, he, you never know how some of these NBA paths are going to go. I don't really see a path for Madar specifically. Cause I, don't, like his, I don't see Brad bring him in over someone like JD. Like when I saw M- Madar at Summer League, he's so skinny. And like, Perfect. I know he was like handsy on defense, getting hands on balls, but um, I think JD's ability to just like run the pick and roll and and throw lobs, that's an NBA ready skill with like his athleticism as well to kind of like midair decide between, you know, throwing the lob or putting in a floater or, you know, having a shot at the rim. You just like can't teach that kind of stuff. And so I would be,
0: I'd be surprised if like it's a matar over, you know, JD. Yeah, that's where I was, you said it, where I was thinking too, is just he has, JD over him has a legit NBA skills that you know he could bring right away. Um, I, I just don't think I see Madar sticking here. I I mean, you never know what they think of him. They obviously watch more international tape than I do, but every time Beggarines, he's he's come over here, I've been impressed about his Physicality at that size is he's got some athleticism that pops off on the tape. And truthfully, I think that that's something the Celtics really miss out of some role players. And it feels like a lot of teams have those guys that can come on the floor and just shake the game up with energy, uh, effort type plays. And Javante Green. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved having Javante on this team, that would be perfect. Um, I don't know if he's still injured or what, but he yeah. Is. Somewhere... What's
1: going on with the Bulls'
0: doctors, man? No, I don't know what's going on over there. Poor Lonzo, man. I I'm know. sorry to hear all that, but yeah. I mean, it. That I know. I'm sort of getting off topic, oh. but it's man. That's so. That's what the that's what yeah. the last segment's for. Yeah, I mean the Celtics. They there's just times where it feels like our guys are so skill oriented that they could really. I'm not saying they need. Aaron Neesmith, and they shouldn't have made that trade. Obviously, that's not how I feel. But having a guy that's kind of got that erratic hustle, uh, athleticism spark like a Neesmith is something that this team could use because, you know, their guys that check in off the bench are Rant Williams, Sam (laughs) Hauser, Malcolm Brogdon. None of these guys are, you know, um, catch a pass, lane to the rim, dunk on your head with a big man rotating. That just feels like a hole on this team that I don't know where they fill that, but obviously that's not what Muscala was when they brought him in that you know what I mean it just feels like they're lacking sort of that real energy guy that a lot of yeah. teams do have that can at the same time that can kind of meet what those other teams bring like you know when we face a team like the magic, they're all youth and energy. Where do we get that? kind of punch to come back at them and typically it's been rob but you know we can't always count on him alone to do that yeah look I that's where
1: maybe you aren't bigger and you know fits in like that's am kind of getting yeah at. yeah you yeah, saw right
0: built that mold for me yeah
1: and I've yeah I I call him the French Jalen because you know when he gets out in transition right like he he's a great finisher in transition he's got a nice handle out there in the open court and like that's all they need from like an uh, that bench guy is like Generate some turnovers. Get out and run. Like, get, let's get moving. And so, I, I've always really liked him. Six foot six guy with some athleticism and skill. Like, you know, and, and the shot. And that's why he's a draft and stash. Because he's, you know, the shot's a question mark um, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, great question. And I haven't really thought about, you know, Madar and Begaron too much. But it's good to know that people are still keeping an eye on them. And, they're, and people think that, that they've got a shot like it just feels like Brad in general is running like an all-encompassing great organization right now like obviously the Celtics are having an amazing year the main Celtics are just like every time I see a box score or a post it's like Celtics win by 40 JD Davis and triple double and then it's like I see a post about Madara Beggarin like being a, a good draft stash combination it's like yeah look maybe JD and Fiondu and but uh, maybe none of them turn into NBA players but like the process from Brad I really like right like the athleticism taking shots on second contract guys um I just
0: I'm uh I love Brad President Pratt he can he can run my country if he would like (laughs) yeah amen Uh, I mean speaking of Maine real quick it it kind of feels like the guy we're waiting on our 15th man is Mr. Tony Snell that's sitting down there. Yeah. I think that was a nice little security Sneaky. blanket that, that Brad um, brought him in there just in case they couldn't find a trade. They couldn't find a um, buyout market pickup. So that has been kind of my thinking that that's the guy that's going to come up. And honestly, I think that's a great addition as the last guy on your bench. Tony Snell. What a guy! Look, that's right.
1: what you need, right? A vet that can Let's come in and
0: Mister Zero Zero Zero. That's right. That's
1: all we need. Just, right. just someone to space the floor just a tiny bit. Yeah, no, I really like it. Look, we we should probably probably wrap it up here uh, right. now that we're onto Maine and and Johan on which I love. Oh, I can right. see her all day.
0: Slow week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I know. Had a, what, one day off. Of exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one day off, and we finally got a
0: win. Look, um, any predictions for the Hawks game tomorrow? Uh, I'm hoping for some good energy. Another win would be great. Um, Yeah, I mean, just come out with the right attitude. That's all I ask. You know, meet them. I I think you can handle the Hawks pretty easily. Just keep Trey in check, keep DeJounte in check, and it should be good. Yeah,
1: look, the the offense, this is what I love about this stretch of games as we go into the playoffs, if they've mentioned, like, not a lot of good defenses. Blazers, Hawks, rockets does the next couple let's get this offense back on track that's what i want to see and yep. um, it's there it's the focus but as to quote the joe a commitment to our principles paint touches spreading the ball um and look i can see it probably kind of being a high scoring high scoring affair but it'll be nice to keep keep trade in front of us and not get cracked off the dribble too much uh as we as we get through that one Alrighty, Nate. It's been an absolute pleasure. And again, follow Nate on Twitter, um, N-E-I-G-H-T. Same with the YouTube channel on YouTube. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Same yep. thing, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, like awesome follow. He's he's like first to post all all the clips, um, get the vibes rolling on the on the timeline, which we which we need. Mm-hmm. And we've got a lot of negative negative Nancy's on Celtic's Twitter these days, and Nate's a, a positive voice out there. Um, and one more reminder, we're, we've moved, we're moving from the Celtics blog to the CLNS um, feed. So follow the First to the Floor podcast feed. Go right now to your Spotify. It can take you seven seconds. Search First to the Floor. Subscribe as we move away from the Celtics blog feed so you can keep hearing these awesome conversations uh, as we as we transition. Nate, it's been a pleasure. Go Celtics.